Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Today we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 49. So if you, if you haven't opened your Bible, please do so. I would encourage you to do so as so you could follow along all throughout this sermon. Uh, but I want to just give you a brief introduction of the psalm itself. Now the psalm is just yet another one of the psalms from the sons of Korah. And this psalm in particular deals with a topic that we are all intimately familiar with, at least to one degree or another, and that's money. Now, whether you realize it or not, the scriptures actually have a profound amount to say about the topic of money. Uh, This is often a rather touchy subject in the church because we tend to make these things all private affairs, Uh, but the reality is that scripture just lays these things bare for us, and we are left to do with them what we ought. The reality is that scripture portrays money as an excellent barometer of your soul, or my soul, or our spiritual condition. Martin Luther simply put it this way. He said, people go through three conversions. You have one, which is the conversion of their head, second, the conversion of their heart, and third, the conversion of their pocketbook. Unfortunately, he says, not all at the same time. Well, the idea that Luther is getting at, which is ultimately what we'll flesh out in this psalm today, is that what we believe about money is going to come out. It will work itself out in how we spend our time, our talents, and everything else, but especially it will reflect what we believe about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to put it bluntly, the focus of this psalm will just simply say it is insane to trust in wealth. Absolute insanity. That's the framework he's going to be dealing with here. He's going to give us four reasons why trusting in wealth is the height of folly, but I want you to understand that nonetheless, no matter how one might stretch it, it is the height of folly to trust in what enriches. The first reason he gives us ultimately is that money simply cannot buy you wisdom and understanding. Now, the second that we will see is that riches cannot redeem your soul or bring the reward of eternal life. The third is that wealth cannot rescue you from death or spare you from the judgment to come. And the fourth and final reason is that ultimately, prosperity is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing. Now, that last one is a bit controversial for us, at least in our American context, but those are the four realities that the psalmist will lay out for us today to simply show that trusting in wealth is the height of foolishness. So what I want to do today is simply unfold that reality verse by verse as we go through Psalm 49 here. So if you would, please turn with me now to verse 1, and we're going to start to see the psalmist just simply highlight this. Now look with me at the text again. Notice the psalmist begins a cry or with a cry to all people everywhere. He says, hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high and rich and poor. Now, the reason for why he calls everyone to attention is radically simple, as verses 3 through 4 will show us. The psalmist is going to give them wisdom. Now, the reality is that this wisdom is much needed because it speaks to a part of the human condition that I believe every single one of us experiences, and a psalmist knows this intimately. Now, the content of this wisdom is going to deal 
explicitly with that topic we've already talked about, that is, the love or trust of money, essentially. Now, behind that, though, there is this dominant theme. That human condition or part of the human condition spoken to that, there just is this disproportionate scale in this world that just so happens to transcend time and space and even culture. On one hand, you have those who are rich and powerful and who abuse their riches and power. And on the other hand, you have those who are poor and needy. The rich and the powerful, he says, or demonstrates implicitly, is that they live seemingly easy lives filled with abundance. They have everything they need at their fingertips. Much comes easy for them. You know, think of it this way. If a problem arises, all they really have to do is throw some money at it or some of their influence at it, and they could make it go away. Now, for the poor and needy, though, he says, or he implies, rather, that life is a seemingly endless series of trials and struggles and obstacles and hardships, that they just simply don't have the time or the money or the luxury to do anything about. Now, regardless of where you and I may fall on that scale, the wisdom being given in this psalm directly applies to us. What I mean by that is whether you're rich or poor, it doesn't simply let you off the hook of what this psalm has to say. He says all of us need to hear these words, and the reason for this is quite simple. Whether or not you have much power and money really ultimately doesn't matter because we all lack wisdom's insight. We we tend to focus on the externals. We see things like money or power or influence, renown, all those different aspects that are external to a person. And we tend to think that if we had only what they have, life would be much, much easier. We would be able to do whatever it is that we so desperately desire to do, and it would make things all the easier rather than the constant, quote-unquote, struggle bus that we have that is life. And in one sense, this is true, right? I mean, money and power simply give you access to things that a lack of money and power don't give you. Right? But in the end, what's missing, at least according to the psalmist here, is perspective. What's missing is wisdom. That's precisely what he's about to give us. And so the reality for all, all of us is that we must pay close, close attention. Now notice what he starts to say in verses 3 through 4. Right? This is, again, he says, My mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, and I will express my riddle on the harp. Notice what the psalmist says, is that he's speaking of something that's outside of himself. Already he's, he's removed himself from the equation. It's not as if he's coming up with this on the fly. The reality is that he has wisdom in which he is going to give. In verse 3, he talks about his need to meditate upon this wisdom. Then in verse 4, he says, I must incline my ear towards this wisdom. The reality is that in both instances, he shows, for one, that this wisdom eluded him at some point but for two, that he needed to pay careful attention to it himself. And that reflection then is what bears reality for us. What I mean by that simply is that it was out of this careful attention to wisdom that came from on high for the psalmist that he now speaks as the one who holds wisdom in his hands. It is a divine wisdom. Again, it comes from God himself. It's not a wisdom which he has to offer or the rich have to offer or even the poor have to offer. The reality is this transcends every last single human. Even to the psalmist, he said this proverb eluded him at first. It was dark and mysterious, a riddle, if you will, as he says in verse 4. But now he's going to make all of that clear 
In other words, it was upon reflection of this profound truth that he came to understanding, and it was a result of God giving him understanding. And so now he says, I'm going to give that understanding to you, to me, to all of us. And it, in one sense, sheds light upon one of mankind's most pressing dilemmas, and that's that we live in a world of the haves and the have-nots. Now, our psalmist is going to answer a question, why do we live in such a world? But he's going to answer it in such a way that is almost offensive to our 21st century modern American ears. What he's going to say in the end is that none of it really matters. That's, that's his answer. It doesn't really matter if you have a lot of money and power or you don't. And the reason he's going to give us is that at the end of all days, every single last one of you and myself will go to the grave. That's the truth of the matter at hand here. He's saying, look, it doesn't matter what you have or what you don't have. What you know is that all men will go to their untimely death or to their timely death, rather. It's the same expression that the book of Ecclesiastes tells us is a matter of Havel. It is a vanity of vanities. It is a uh, relatively worthless pursuit, right? Christ even spoke of this reality when he highlighted the, re- uh, the purpose of money and wealth, right? It's not that we may pursue it and that we would forsake our soul for the sake of gaining this whole world. No, rather, it's actually a fruitless endeavor to do so. He says, what does it gain a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Right? He says, you cannot serve both mammon and money. You cannot serve, I'm sorry, rather mammon and God or money and God. In other words, all that Christ even said is that it's a fool's errand to simply pursue wealth as if it's this uh, end-all, be-all. Well, the psalmist here is going to reveal much the same. It's a relatively worthless pursuit because when all is said and done, none of us can take it with us. We will all give it to those who have never worked a day in their life to get it, and we will go down into the grave. In the grave, it will be powerless to do anything for us. And so what we put much stock in today matters very little tomorrow. That's the reality he's painting here. It's rather bleak and dismal, isn't it? But the point of it is that if you put your hope in that which only brings death, then there is no hope in that at all. In other words, it's actually futility, it's folly, it is the height of insanity, if you will, because all it does is have the power to bring you under the control of death. That's it. What does matter, though, is what he's going to highlight throughout this psalm, which is that it matters very much so what you and I place our hope and trust in, and that is the much-needed wisdom that we ought to hear. That is the much-needed wisdom that all the world needs to hear. And so the question for all of us today is simply, what is our hope? Right? That is the ultimate question of all mankind. What is our hope? That's the ultimate question of all of history, is what is the purpose of man? What is our hope? Right? Now, the psalmist is going to reveal this today by showing the absolute, absolute futility of what is not to be our hope. Again, that is trusting in wealth, and he's going to show us in four different ways. Now, the first one he's already revealed to us. It may have slipped right on by, but verses 1 through 4 show us simply that wealth cannot buy wisdom and understanding. It cannot buy wisdom and understanding. As the psalmist called everyone to attention, whether they were poor rich, tall, short, black, white, whatever external appearance we want to go by, every single man, woman, and child is called to attend to the words of wisdom simply because it is needed. Money cannot buy you this. 
Fame cannot get you it. If you want wisdom and understanding, you must attend yourself to the one who is able to give it, which is God himself. By his very word, that is the source from which we will find it. So the point, therefore, is that it is folly to look for wisdom elsewhere. You can attend every master class, every TED Talk, go to every conference, buy every single book on the face of this earth, and spend every last dime you have, but the reality is that money will only get you so far, and this world's wisdom will only get you so far. It will cause you, ultimately, to flunk out of the school of wisdom if you do not submit yourself to the scriptures, because scripture is the absolute authority from which all wisdom comes. It comes from God himself. There's a wisdom, again, that cannot be bought with gold and silver. That is the very foundation of all of this, right? If we get this wrong, we will ultimately go wrong on everything else. Now, that's the first reason why it's madness to trust in wealth. And he's going to highlight three more, so continue to pay attention here. But look with me now at verses 5 through 9, and I want to show you just simply the second reason why he shows it's complete insanity. The ultimately, or ultimately, he summarizes this by saying it it can't redeem your soul or it cannot bring reward of eternal life. Now think of how twisted up you have to be to believe that wealth can actually do this, but this is where these people are at. Notice he begins this section. He he actually asks a rhetorical question in verses 5 through 6. So look down with me at the text here. He says, "Why? Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. Now, there's a natural implication of everything that's taking place here, but behind it, again, there is a, there is a group of people who hold all of the wealth and power and a group of people who do not. There's a drastic shift, though, here, where he just naturally brings out the reality that they ought not fear, that he does not even fear. And so he's bringing this contrast between the poor and the wealthy to full focus right then and there, but he's going to continue to highlight that throughout the rest of this psalm. But the important thing to keep in mind is he's not talking as if this is just simply a personal problem, meaning that as an individual, he's facing a hard time from another individual. No, this is the very characterization of the land. You have the rich and the powerful who are the elites, if you will, ruling over the people who have no ability or power to do anything about it. They have every recourse or everything available to them to be able to kill others, to be able to put them in prison, to do whatever the heck they desire to, all for the sake of causing them misery. But he says, I shall not fear. Right? There are incredibly dark and evil days transpiring around him, and in the midst of it, he says, I shall not fear. Right? There's this implicit faith that's grounded in the reality that he understands, which is that there is wisdom's teaching in the midst of all of this. Right? He, he looks about, he sees that the haves not only have a tremendous amount of money and power, but they're actually flaunting that power and wealth, and they're using it and abusing it. But he sees that at the end of all days, it doesn't really matter all that much. Now, you have to have a bit of perspective in order to think like that, do you not? But the reason for it is simple. He knows these people are hastening towards the day of judgment. They are hastening towards the day they will die. In the end, it's very, very temporary. Now, he looks at these people again. He sees his enemies surround him. When he says that the iniquity of his enemies surrounds him, the way that expression is broken out in the Hebrew is actually talking about like if a snake were to lie in the grass and wait to strike at your heels. 
right? So this is the constant reality, is that these people who have much wealth and power are continually trying to strike at the heels of those who do not. So it's not as if these people cannot take the upper hand or they do not have the upper hand. They're lying in wait in order to do so and to afflict much pain. No matter where they turn, evil is snapping at their heels and seeking to bring them down, but the faith of the psalmist is incredible. Again, because he has the perspective of wisdom. He has, if you will, an eternal perspective. He has an unshakable confidence because he knows Ultimately, that those who trust in their wealth embrace the height of foolishness because all of that wealth will disappear on the day they die. Now, our psalmist in verses 7 through 9 is going to provide an answer for why we should not fear the wicked who have an abundance of power and wealth. Now, look down with me, and I want you to see this. This is as crystal clear as you can get. He says, they have all this wealth, all this power, and then look. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. And what should he stop trying? That he should live on eternally or that he should not undergo decay. He says, look, no matter how rich and powerful the wicked may be, they cannot keep God off their heels ultimately. They might be hunting down the righteous. They might be striking at their heels, but all the while God is still behind them. He is waiting for that moment in which he will strike in judgment. In other words, they have a false confidence, right? These are people who think that they are on the top of all things, and yet God still stands above them. They think that they have enough money and power and influence and even status to where they are invincible, or rather that they can take this and then buy off God himself. That's the foolishness of what they believe here. They believe they can even bribe God for their own soul's redemption. But he says, no, no, no. The reality is quite the contrary. He says, no man can by any means, not by any means, redeem his brother. And by brother, he just means his fellow man or give to God a ransom for him. Now, the question is why? Well, he says, if you look down yet again, for the redemption of his soul is costly. For the redemption of his soul is costly. It's impossible, in other words, for one to buy back their soul from the clutches of a wrathful God with the things of this earth. Now, the concept of a ransom goes back to the Old Testament law, but the idea is simply that there is a price that is owed. There is a payment or compensation that must be paid because it is due ultimately to God himself or to another, right? You have different occurrences of this. So picture Exodus 21. You don't have to flip there, but there's an example in which uh, if a bull gores a man or a woman, what happens, right? That bull is to be put to death. However, if that bull has a history of goring people, not only should that bull be killed, but the man who owns that bull is also to be put to death. However, if the one who has his possessions or property or even family gored, decides he can then institute what's called a ransom payment, that the man who owned the bull must pay this ransom payment and he can redeem his own life from death. That's the point. He owes, he owes a price, right? There's a price for what his bull destroyed and gored. And if a man decides to, he can take that ransom payment. But if not, that man dies. Numbers 35 also tells us that there are situations in which a ransom payment cannot apply. One of them is murder, 
right? So if you murder another man, he says that you cannot pay the ransom price. Your life has been forfeited. Again, the reason why? The soul is costly. Now we get to the New Testament, we have the same idea come up when it speaks of Christ being our ransom, right? So Mark 10.45 says that he did not come to serve or to Uh, or I'm sorry, rather, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a what? A ransom for many, right? Right, so the idea is that there is a price or some compensation that is owed, ultimately, that one must pay. And that's the idea that he's referring to here. The point is that it can only apply in certain circumstances, and as we see here, one of them that it cannot apply in is wealth. Right? There is no such amount of money that you can pay to redeem your soul from God. That's the point. Evidently, the rich and the powerful are foolish enough to believe they can bribe God, but it's a fool's errand is what he's showing us. There is simply no way that if you summed up all of the vast earthly treasure that is around, that it would even be enough to redeem your soul because your soul is costly. Right? That's what he says. The redemption of his soul is costly. In fact, he says it's so costly that you shouldn't even bother to try this, right? What's the point of even bothering to try? What's the point of even bothering to try and escape the grave through your wealth and power? You can't do it. Now, it's very, very interesting, at least to me, that the word he uses here for costly is actually not a financial term. You know, we have the financial terms with redemption and ransom, but here with the word costly, it doesn't speak of money. It actually just speaks to this intrinsic worth or value, a preciousness, if you will, but one that's intangible, one that cannot be matched by some physical aspect or quality. The soul is so precious, in other words, that he says, no treasure on earth is enough to essentially stack against it. Everything pales in comparison to the soul. There's nothing quite literally that's valuable enough on this earth that stacks up against the worth of the soul. Now, because the soul is so valuable, or valuable, rather. And because we know that sin has even infected its way into every nook and cranny of our souls, the reality is that he's saying, once again, there's nothing man can do to redeem himself through wealth. You know, we might take all of our earthly baubles and trinkets and put them together as if they're going to somehow please God enough, but the reality is that you put it before him and he looks at it and says, congratulations, this is just a pile of dung. I mean, that's the stark reality of it. And yet we look at wealth and treasure as if it's so much, much more than that. The simple point to this brief section is just to show that literally nothing on earth can buy back the soul from God. God is the one who stacks the debt on top of it. God is the one who demands a payment. And yet no matter what payment the rich people in this psalm try to come up with, he says it's not enough. Nothing can stack against it. Money and power, in other words, cannot fix it. And it just naturally assumes that we're all born into this reality. So what does it testify to? Well, it testifies to the reality that the debt stacked on to the soul who sins is far greater than you and I could ever possibly imagine. Far, far greater Right? We, end, uh, we underestimate the reality of what sin has actually done to separate us from our creator. We know, we've all heard the illusion of that cliff or chasm in between us and God, right? There's an inapproachable gulf between, or gulf between us. We like to think we can see the other side. The reality is, is that gulf is infinite. 
We can't see the other side. We can't even come close to seeing it. That's how much our sin has screwed everything up. The reality is the distance between man and God is infinite. This is the only reason that we are able to come before the Father with a sheer sense of hopelessness is that we just simply can't do it. We can't approach it. That's the same that it's stacked up with with wealth here. He's talking about it and saying, look, only God can wipe the slate clean. Ultimately, he's pointing out the reality that God himself is the one who can save. God himself is the one who can redeem. God himself is the one who can ransom, but not man and his wealth and power. They are insignificant and unable to do so through their creaturely constraints. Only God, through sheer grace and mercy, can pay the penalty owed and save man from the stain of sin and the sting of death. Right? That's That's the base level reality here, he says. Every single last one of us is hurtling towards the grave. Our end is all the same. Death is the great equalizer, and money means nothing in that equation. Right? This is when you look at things and you say, okay, this is, of course, why a substitute was needed. Right? For the Israelite, they had to have a blameless and pure sacrifice of lambs and goats in order to be forgiven, and they were forgiven. But we know even that the sacrifices and offerings could not fully and finally deal with sin, right? We know that as we come to the New Testament, this reality is shown all the more clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ because he is the one who died as our perfect substitute. All the while, Scripture is just simply testifying that one has to stand in our place because the ransom is so high that none can pay it. Right In Christ, though, the ransom price was paid in full. He is the only one who can accomplish this reality. In Christ, he is the only one who can accomplish an absolution of our debt, meaning it's, it's wiped clean. We find ourselves free from the penalty of sin. None of it's because of our own works or efforts, or especially not our wealth. So what is he highlighting all the more? Well, you have people who believe they can pay off their debt before God. They believe that in some way, shape, or form, they can muster up enough earthly treasure to bring it before their creator as if it's not his to begin with and as if that's somehow going to please him and give him a sufficient payment for the precious worth of their tainted soul. He says this will not hold off the grave. It will not buy back their soul. No matter what they think of their vast treasure, it cannot redeem, it cannot bring the reward of eternal life. The reality is that only God can do such a thing. And we're going to see this all the more clearly as we get more towards the end of the psalm here. But this is a second reason why he shows it's just utter insanity to trust in wealth. He says there's, there's absolutely nothing it can really accomplish in the eternal scheme of things. It may include a lot of things that we can do in the here and now. It might afford you the ability to do much and to exercise a great amount of power. But in the end, it will never, ever redeem the soul. It will never bring life. Now, the next reason we see why it's insanity to trust in wealth is that it can't rescue you from the grave, right? It can't stave off death. As much as many may try to find eternal life in some way, shape, or form, All the money in the world is useless to accomplish that end. But more than that, it's useless to free them from the judgment to come. Now notice what the psalmist says in verses 10 through 12. 
He says, for even, or for he sees that even wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. I mean, how's that for just blunt? Their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. To summarize that, it is stupid and senseless to trust in wealth. Why? Because death is the great equalizer. It's the great equalizer. Every single one of us must face the grave. Every single one of us must pay the penalty for sin, that we must die. That's his point here, right? Whatever their net worth, whatever the vast sum of all their baubles and trinkets, no matter what they may seek to do and how much power they wield or influence they have, he says death is going to swallow them up just like every single last person on the face of the earth. Right Again, Ecclesiastes speaks to this reality so, so well. It speaks to the reality that one inescapable fate stands before all men. One inscrutable enemy stands before every single person. Whether wise or foolish, righteous or wicked, tall or short, good or bad, clean or unclean, rich or poor, all who live under the sun must die. And to top it all off, when they die, they will leave it all behind. None of it will go down into the grave with you. You may bury yourself with your treasures, but it's not exactly going to go anywhere. Right? Look at the Egyptians. They did this. All it took then was for some white men to come along and take it years later. It's a height of foolishness. All the work of amassing riches and rubbing shoulders with the elites, the who's who's of society, he says, is utterly pointless. It will come to nothing. Right, that is the definition of futility. He says, for the wicked, though, this is a profound truth they must come to embrace because though they might strive for immortality in some way, shape, or form in this life, it will fade just like everything else. Think of it like this. Right? When you have a loved one that dies, the immediate time that happens, you can't stop thinking about them, Right? Day in and day out, they are brought to memory. And yet, little by little, day by day, month by month, you just don't think about them as much. This was a person who influenced you and was profoundly uh, used to shape your life. Perhaps they even brought you to Christ. And yet, the reality is that time swallows them up just like everything else. We forget, we move on, because life moves on. If that's the case for those who you love, if that's the case for those who we could call righteous, imagine how quickly that time fades for the wicked. That's the reality of what he's speaking to here. It's going to fade. It's going to ultimately just be consumed by death. And for the righteous, this is a profound truth that I think we ought to simply embrace as well because it means that no matter how much you may see a a wicked, wealthy man rise up and abuse his power and station in life, at the end of all days, he still is going to go down into the grave. But the beautiful reality is that none of that will carry with him into the next life. Well, think of how much you and I spin our wheels trying to speak against the crooked politician or the terrible business practices that many places will just simply enact on a day-to-day basis. They're going to the grave. One day they will no longer be in their place. You will look for them and you will not find them. 
their influence, their money, their power, all of that stuff will only last so long. But the promise is that in the next life, they will face judgment for these things. Now, the interesting dilemma is that despite the reality that all of us know so well that everyone must die and death hunts us all down, is that the wicked, he says, seek to make an everlasting name for themselves nonetheless. Look what he says in verse 11. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever, their dwelling places to all generations. They seek to do something they can be remembered by. For some of them, it's, again, putting wealth into vast homes or perhaps even businesses which can be passed down from generation to generation to generation. And they think that this is how they will find immortal life. For others, they may be name lands after themselves, or they open up opera houses, or name museums after themselves, businesses, everything that you can think of under the sun. They think that history will hold their name in high regard because they've got their name plastered on the side of a building. And what happens But people pass by it and they have no stinking clue who that person is. Both alike find the reality of verse 12 comes to full focus. But man, he says, in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. Now how's that for uplifting? Right? Man in his pomp, man in his grandiosity, his love of making a show, he will not endure. He's just going to be like all the cattle of the field who one day die alone and sink down into the dirt. I mean, how stark of a reality is that? It shows that these men, even though they know one day they're going to die like everybody else, they think they will be the exception to the rule. They have seen countless others before them whose names have been forgotten, whose legacies have been overridden by time and everything else. And they look upon them and say, I will be the one who's different. They will remember me. Think of the world's greatest dictators, the world's most affluent and smartest and richest men in all of history. Just think of that. Off the top of your head, how many can you name? And can you tell me what they loved? Can you tell me what they hated? What it is that drove their conquests, what it is that sought them or got them out of bed each and every day. The reality is that who they are as a person is summed up in the epitaph of it doesn't really matter. Because at the end of all days, what we have come to is a generation that has simply been lost through history like everybody else. He says that those who try to be immortalized, they know they must die. He says that they try to be immortalized through the means of this earth He says, this is the way of fools. Now look with me now at verses 13 through 15, and we see this abundantly clearly. And we also see why. He says, this is the way of those who are foolish and of those who approve of their words. As sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their form shall be for Sheol to consume, so that they have no habitation. Notice what he says here. It's not just those who believe all of this. It's those who will believe their words. Right? Not just those who do it, but those who approve them. In other words, he says there are many willing devotees of this school of thought. 
but he says that it's the way of the empty-headed fool who desperately needs to understand wisdom. That's the point of this. It's simply to say that there is this allure of wealth and power that's available that everybody sees and that many will chase after because they believe that if they can possess it, that somehow that they too will stave off death. They too will thwart it to some degree or another. But look at how bleakly he treats this. He says, all are sheep. And who is their shepherd? Death. Death is their shepherd. He says, they are grazing in the fields of death that he is the one who is their keeper. He will inevitably usher them to the grave and they feed day after day, blissfully unaware of the time that their life will be demanded of them and they will be brought to the slaughter. That's just bleak, right? There's so much more in the grave in mind here, though, that when he says that the one who trusts in riches will be led to Sheol, death itself is personified. We see that already. But the idea is that death will not merely uh, cause them to graze in his fields, if you will. He will cart them into the next life. He will be their shepherd. But this will shepherd or this will shape every single thing from their existence from that moment on meaning that death will be their present reality for all eternity. That's the real reality of what he's speaking to here. You know, again, we look at the externals, but he says, no, death is their shepherd now, and death will characterize every waking moment from here on out to the end of eternity. It's a horrible, horrifying existence, and he says, no one who trusts in wealth shall escape this. But notice there's a stark contrast between the destinies of the one who trusts in wealth and the one who does not. Verse 14 tells us this, right? He talks about those who trust in wealth, and he says, of the upright, they shall rule over them, being the wicked in the morning, and therefore, in being the form of the wicked, shall be for a shield to consume, so that they have no habitation. Right? The, the idea is simple. The righteous might be under affliction constantly. They might have absolutely nothing in this life. Every waking moment might be abysmal for them, but in the life to come, they shall have every misfortune uprooted. Every wicked deed done against them shall be flipped on its head, and they shall be the ones that exercise dominion and authority in the end. That's a a radically different thing, isn't it? Right? You have those who will go down into the grave, they will lose everything and all of their pomp and circumstance, all of their wealth and power will go down to the grave with them. He says, but the ones who are righteous, rather, will, will rule over them in the end. So they may have been afflicted in this life, but in the one to come, they will not be. Again, notice the stark contrast again in 15. He says, but God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. He will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. Right? You have the contrast to the wicked and the righteous set. The wicked will go down into the grave where they experience death as their shepherd, but not so for the righteous. He even uses that word redeem again here. It brings us full circle back to verse 7. But in there, he talks about the reality that no man with his earthly treasures can redeem his soul from the power of death. But here, he says, who's going to do the redeeming? It's going to be God, right? God will do the redeeming. God will redeem this man's soul from the power of death. Right? There's not the same fate for the righteous as there is for the wicked. He says for the wicked, there's no hope of redemption. There's, 
only the hope of eternal death, which is no hope at all. But for the righteous, he says, there is an incredible hope because they shall not taste death like the wicked. They shall not undergo decay like the wicked. They're not putting their efforts and pursuits into things which will ultimately only hold them closer and closer to the grave. The reality is that he says God will be the one who is their shepherd instead of death. God will redeem or buy back their soul where they cannot. God will restore life to them where they cannot. God will receive them at the end of their lives rather than the grave receiving them. There is no power in death for them. That's the beautiful point here. That's the truth for those of us who are in Christ. Right? The reality is that when you and I die, death will not hold its victory. Right? That's an exciting thing, isn't it? I mean, death will not hold its sting. It's been defeated in Christ. The hope of the psalmist, the hope that even we have, is not that the wicked will simply die off and that we have a little bit easier of a life. I mean, that's just a, a damnable lie that will bring you to hell just as quickly as trusting in your wealth. The hope of us is that we have the resurrection, right? You, know, you and I know that if one wicked man dies, another one will just rise and take his place. But the ultimate hope of good triumphing over evil is what's in mind here. And ultimately, it's born in the resurrection, When all is said and done, he's saying there is essentially this reward for the righteous that nothing on earth can stop. This is ultimately why this man has no fear. This is ultimately why he will give a command later to say, do not fear. But we press forward and endure through this life simply knowing the fact that there is nothing in this earth that can stop our heavenly inheritance from reaching us. Right? God will ultimately receive the righteous. God will rescue them from the power of death. Is this not perhaps the greatest reason why trusting in wealth is insanity? You have one guaranteed means by which you can find freedom from the sting of death, and it is Christ. It is God himself. And yet these men want to take it and still say, perhaps our riches will be enough to stave off the power of death. That's madness. Now, you can think about it. You can supplement anything else you want in the place of wealth here. It could be your health. It could be your friends, family, whatever else you want to put in there. But it is sheer madness nonetheless. The point of the psalmist here is that the only solution is ultimately found in God himself. The only remedy is in God himself. God is the one who will redeem his soul. It is not going to be wealth. It is not going to be power. It is not going to be anything else you can put into your imagination. The reality is that God himself will do it. To think of this, this is at the heart of our hope as Christians, right? We have a hope that God will redeem our soul from the grave, that we are not those who go down and sink into the ground and are left there simply to die. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. You don't need to flip there, but he says, our hope is so certain because we have a resurrection. He says that if the dead are not raised, ultimately our faith is in vain because Christ has not been raised and we are still dead in our sins and trespasses. He says, furthermore, that if our hope in Christ is for this life alone, we are to be pitied above all other men. In other words, he says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, what is the point of all of it? You might as well be merry and eat and drink for tomorrow you die. If death still holds its sting, if we are like all other men whose shepherd is death, then what's the point? The reality, though, is that's not the case for us. 
Beloved, what I want to drive home, at least in this section here, is that this psalmist has a profound hope in the resurrection. He may not understand every single aspect of it like we do today simply because we have the fullness of God's revelation given to us. But nonetheless, long before Christ even came, this man had a hope that God would redeem him and rescue him from the sting and power of death. That has been the hope of God's people from the very beginning when sin and Satan and death wreaked havoc upon creation. Right? That has been the hope that we continue to press forward and the hope that we continue to tell of others, or for others rather. The reality of what the psalmist is portraying here is that it's the fool's heart that is driven towards a trust in external things or things of this earth rather than the God who is the master and dom- master and authority figure over every single aspect of it, including death. This is why I say it's utter insanity and madness to trust in wealth. Right, that's the third reason. We've, we've been given three reasons. Now we have our fourth and final. But I want you to pay close attention to this section because this is probably the harder of the four. It's ultimately that wealth is deceiving to some degree. And what I mean is that prosperity is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing. That's fairly easy enough to derive from what we've seen so far already. But I want you to see how this just simply unfolds in the text here. All right, so we have a command that's now given. This is the only command in the passage, verses 16 and 17. It says, Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. All right, so everything is coming off of the heels of what we've already heard. But his point is that they may have the upper hand in this life, but in the next, they won't. It doesn't matter, ultimately. No matter how much glory they may take upon this earth, no matter how much wealth they may have, it'll all go away when they die. None of it can follow him into the life to come. Right? If his house or the glory of his house increases, if his influence and reputation and everything else increases, he says that glory will not follow him down into the grave. That's the stark reality of it. He says, in death, he will be no more wealthy or powerful than anyone else in all of creation. In fact, everything that he has accomplished in this life will not help him in the life to come. In other words, it was all temporary. That's the reason we do not fear, right? None of it is built to last. It's futility. Notice how he just drives this reality home even further in 18 and 19. He says, though while he lives, he congratulates himself. He pats himself on the back, in other words. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers, and they will never see the light. Now, it's hard not to read this and and not think of the rich fool in Luke 12, isn't it? You know this story well, or at least I hope you do, but the rich fool, he ends up having a tremendous amount of grain come in in the harvest, And he harvests it, of course, and he recognizes the fact that his current storehouses will not be able to hold it. And so what does he do? Well, he thinks to himself, I'm going to tear down these ones and I'm going to build new ones. But I've got so much abundance, what I'm going to do then is take the rest of life easy. I no longer need to work. I no longer need to really do much of anything. I can eat and drink and be merry, for I've got enough for the rest of my life. And yet what happens God comes to him and says, 
you fool, this night your very life will be demanded of you. Right? It's interesting, isn't it? We, we as good Americans especially would think that this is just shrewd business dealings. We would think this man is embodying the height of wisdom. He built up his nice nest egg. He could retire young. He could live out his days in, in peace and prosperity and just have a good time. He could enjoy good food and drink and leisure and basically embody the American dream in a, in a nutshell. But God labels him a fool. Now, why do you think that is? Well, ultimately, it's because he trusted in his wealth. He failed to recognize everything he had been given, including his life, could be demanded of him. And when the time had come, he could not pay the ransom price. What's worse than this is that he failed to take into account that his wealth meant absolutely nothing in the grave. You see, that's the major weakness of riches. They have no purchasing power in death. It's quite simple when you put it in that kind of a perspective, isn't it? It's quite sobering, but it's quite simple. Right? This is even born out of the reality of what Christ talked about when he said the demand of following him would encompass everything. He tells his disciples in Matthew 16, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross and follow me. So he says, in other words, if you want to follow Christ or me, you must die. Your life must end. Pick up the means of your execution and go the road to death. There is no other way. He says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The great paradox, right? The great paradox of all time, if you give up your life for the sake of following Christ, you get to live. If you try to save your life, if you reject Christ, it's death. And so the choice is that you can be his disciple or that you can reject him and find death. But the temptation of so many is to think that by rejecting Christ, it is worth it. Right? They can have all of the treasures of this earth. It's worth it. But here's where it gets particularly relevant to what he said. He asks the question, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in glory of his Father with his angels and then will repay every man according to his deeds. That's blunt. That's harsh. You might become the richest and most powerful man on all the earth, but in the end, he says, none of it makes a difference if it forfeits or causes you to forfeit your soul. Why? Well, as our psalmist showed here, everybody else goes to the grave, and so too will you. He will repay for every deed. Right? This is what our psalmist has portrayed all throughout the psalm. It's futile. We may grow rich and powerful. We may boast in our achievements while we live. We may have many followers and devotees of the school of quote-unquote wisdom we have to give. But absolutely none of that means that we are blessed of God in that moment. Right? We can have all of these different good things, if you will, but none of that means that we have found God's favor. Not in and of itself. 
This is what's so particularly damning about the prosperity gospel. Right? The prosperity gospel teaches that you, when you have health or wealth or power or even many possessions, that you are under God's favor. So long as you have a bunch of stuff, it teaches that all is well. And while I believe that most of you here would reject it, emphatically reject it, and rightly so, we've all been tainted by it. We've all in some way, shape, or form bought into the lie that when prosperity comes our way, it is always a result of God's blessing. Sometimes it's just simply the result of living in an affluent culture that is literally on its way to death. Sometimes it is simply a result of much sin and foolishness. Perhaps it is God's blessing, right? We don't simply embrace one aspect or another. We don't embrace the theology of poverty. Perhaps it is God's blessing. But have you ever stopped to consider whether or not it is simply a temptation or a distraction, one that lulls you to sleep in the midst of what we call the Christian life? My brothers and sisters, it's painful when we start to look at these things, but sometimes the allure of riches the allure of wealth and power and prestige and all that stuff comes very subtly our way. And it is not necessarily a blessing, but a curse. Let me put it in in this perspective. Have you ever stopped to contemplate if the next promotion being offered, the next business opportunity, the next financial windfall, the bigger and better house, the vacation, all those things that are not inherently evil in and of themselves, Have you ever considered if it is merely the bait that Satan has placed upon a dangling hook to lull you or lure you slowly, little by little, into a love and trust of money? Scriptures say that our heart is deceitful above all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Many have succumbed to a love of money over a seemingly endless series of small, insignificant decisions or they never intended to get to that point. And that's what sin does always, right? You never find a person who all of a sudden is a righteous man who is filled with much prayer and boldness and conviction who's now all of a sudden in an affair, Little by little, choices are made along the way that carry us down a road. And the question is, are we thinking through that road? Or are we merely putting one foot in front of another and inevitably letting that road carry us? Wealth does not guarantee God's favor is upon us. It may well be a sign of judgment. In our culture, I think it is. And I'm not saying for each and every one of you individually, I'm just saying for our broader culture. Now, once more, I want to to just highlight the reality of what he says in verse 20. There's a refrain built into it that shows the utter futility of trusting in wealth. He says, yet again, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. If you notice, there's a a slight difference. It's a repetition of verse 12, but there's a slight difference here. Verse 12 speaks of them being unable to endure, right? It's not built to last. It never was intended to. These men will go down into the grave. But then he says in verse 20, 
this same man who will not endure, who is pompous, is ultimately the one who lacks understanding. In other words, he has rejected wisdom's keen insight. So what is the psalmist doing here? Well, he's showing that when all is spoken and wisdom has been revealed, there is an expectation upon all who hear his words. He says we have two courses before us, right? We have the way of folly and the way of wisdom. Folly, of course, is trusting in one's wealth. Wisdom is ultimately trusting in the one who can deliver you from the power and sting of death, which is God himself. You will either heed that instruction or you will reject it, is ultimately what he's laying before us. The man who trusts in his wealth has a choice to forsake this or he has a choice to continue. But there is not a third way. And that's the sobering reality here. He says, the one who rejects this wisdom will ultimately perish just like the beasts of the field. It reminds you yet again of the truth he talked about earlier, where there is no hope of the resurrection for them. Whatever glory they held in this life will depart from them in the next. All of their vast wealth and riches will go down into the grave with them. They will mean nothing. They will go to somebody else who didn't work for it. All of that time and everything else that was consumed by this one end will be coming to nothing. And death will be their shepherd. But the beautiful thing, and I mean the immensely beautiful thing, is that for those who listen to wisdom's call, the exact opposite is the case. He says, for those who trust in the Lord, who follow the way of their Lord, things will be precisely the opposite. Whatever dishonor and shame they bore in this life, he says they will have in the next. They will be ultimately reversed. They shall rule over the wicked. They shall not see or taste of death like the wicked. Death shall not be their shepherd, much like it is for the wicked. God will receive them. He will receive them into his bosom for all eternity. And so when all is said and done here, what I want to do very simply is just draw this to a close and speak once more to the reality that the psalmist highlights. And so what is that? Well, ultimately, it's that the trust of wealth is madness. It's ultimately madness. There's, there's no rhyme or reason to why we should ever be fooled into thinking that it will deliver, save, fulfill, or do anything but bring us closer and closer to the grave. Is it inherently evil to have wealth and power? No. Do we often fool ourselves into thinking that we can have our cake and eat it too with it though? Yes. We ought to never be very impressed with those who have much, and yet their soul is in a state of constant poverty. The real reality is that it matters very little whether or not you and I have much wealth or very little wealth, or whether or not you and I have much power or very little power. It, it won't make a grand difference at the end of all days because the reality is that death will swallow all of it up. Day by day, they will be led to the grave and death will be their shepherd in the end. But for you and I, if we are in Christ, the complete opposite is the case. So why must we try and strive after that which is going to go to the grave? When we look at this, though, the sad reality is that many will reject Christ for far less than riches and power, and yet in the end, 
it reveals that they too truly hope and trust in something other than him. Right, this psalm speaks to the insanity of trusting in wealth and power, but there are any number of other things that can do that. All you need to do to land yourself in hell is reject Christ. You don't have to just trust in wealth and power. All you need to do is reject Christ. That's it. For the opposite, though, for those who do not reject Christ, there is an incredible promise simply built into this. And that is that we will never see decay. We will never go down into the grave. Death does not hold its sting. Death has no victory. Ultimately, God is the one who will redeem us and bring us into his presence forever. That is the wonderful truth of this. And so the question is, again, what is your hope? We are all a mere series of breaths away from the grave. It is hastening towards that day. We will all go down into it. But the question is, Will we come out of it? For those in Christ, it is an emphatic yes. Death shall not hold its power. So in the end, the only meaningful difference between the rich and poor, the low and the high, or anyone else for that matter, is if you have come to trust in Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ, you need not fear what the rich or powerful might do in all their wickedness. But let it be said once more in everything that It's a height of insanity to trust in wealth. But it is a height of wisdom to trust ultimately in the one who can deliver us from death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us so great a salvation through Christ that even though our hearts are fickle and frail and that we are tempted in various ways to forget that beautiful truth and the reality that you have sanctified us by your spirit and bought us with your blood, that you are ever, always, and faithfully our God. And so I pray that as we go home today and as we go about the rest of this week, that you would lift up our hearts and minds to apprehend the truth of this reality and to realize its beauty and its depth and to not be fearful of those who have much in this life, but that we would ultimately look with the perspective of wisdom and knowing that in the end, it doesn't matter. What matters is what our hope is. And so I pray that you would fill us with much hope, much joy, much peace and love of Christ, that we would not let this world bring darkness upon our own minds and hearts, but that we would be brimming, hopeful people, being able to point the lost to this hope that is everlasting, that we point them to Jesus Christ who has the power over death. We thank you for him. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and for your word. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.